Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no holds barred truth about being a woman post 40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. My guest this week has come a hell of a long way. From the Derbyshire village where she grew up, to London and the editor's seat of Empire magazine, by way of New York, where she was one of Folio magazine's top women in American media. Ostensibly then, Terry White was living the single woman in Manhattan dream. But uber-competent at work, Terry was clinging by a thread in her personal life, struggling with chronic depression, self-harming, and self-medicating with alcohol and prescription pills. When she was admitted to a psychiatric ward, it marked the beginning of a remarkable journey that she documents in her memoir, Coming Undone. To say it's raw and unflinching would be a massive understatement. I am so thrilled to be in my 40s, so absolutely thrilled. And I am very, very, very excited for 50s and beyond. Brace yourself for some extreme honesty as Terry discusses her mental health struggles, how becoming a mother affected her relationship with her own mother, Curing herself of busy, busy, busy. Why she would not go back to 25 if you paid her. Oh, and her extremely complicated relationship with her hair. Also, trigger warning. I must stress that there is frank discussion of mental health, sexual abuse, self-harm and suicidal ideation. Thank you for coming on The Shift. Should we just plunge you straight into the trauma? Let's do it. (laughs) Coming Undone, your memoir, which has just gone into paperback, is amazing. It is incredibly raw and incredibly visceral and really, really honest. Why did you do it? What made you want to do that? So I'd originally started writing 50-word stories when I came out of the psychiatric ward I'd been sectioned in. And I was trying to fill my time and just find something to focus on. My agent, who just started a literary agency, she encouraged me to put it into a book. I didn't sit and think, what will I share and what will I not share? I didn't have a sense of there being anything that was off limits. And I think once you write something like that, the contract with yourself and the page is that you have to have complete honesty and that was always the deal I think I was seeking to understand what I'd been through but also understand myself a bit better and to be able to do that there has to be nowhere that is off limits 
I wanted to really convey what it feels like when your head is in that much turmoil, when you are haunted by memories and experiences, and to try and give a sense of what trauma really feels like. And that's really hard because it is all entirely in your own head. That inner feeling all just came spilling out really and then it was about trying to make it make a bit more sense. Let's talk about the outer you at that point. You were then and still are extremely successful magazine editor. You were living the dream, you know, that kind of 30-something successful magazine editor living in, in New York. You know, I'm sure everybody thinks it's all parties and I mean we know it's all working till midnight, but <laughs> what was going on for you between outer terror and inner Terry what was happening at that point well I had a big job that kind of defined me I was known for being a magazine editor and as soon as I made the move to New York all of that became amplified because you're living in this incredibly cinematic city that people often talk about having ambitions of working in there's that sense still I think of in our industry that if you make it in New York you know you can make it anywhere you truly are a big deal if you can edit a big magazine in in New York and there's always been a level of performance I think with those kind of jobs when I got to New York everything then just got dialed up so you know bigger teams a big office my personal office in New York was probably as big as my office is now for my entire team so you've got a big team you've got a big office in this amazing building in Manhattan invites to parties and some of those parties I would go to and dinners with important people and and all of those things existed but I was very 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 quickly unraveling in that circumstance so I was drinking very very heavily most nights to complete blackout people may have thought I was going to parties but I might go to one party find it incredibly awkward and awful and I would instead go to a bar around the corner a dive bar sit at the bar and get completely wasted by myself somehow make at home I would never know how I'd got home wake up in the morning terribly hungover put the eye drops in my eyes to get rid of the red veins so that nobody knew I'd been drinking have a scalding hot shower kind of put loads of makeup on a massive dress and off I go and start it all again and I was also taking a lot of prescription pills at that point but I still manage people always say to me oh well how did you manage to hold a job down and I was probably the most successful I'd ever been in my life at that point the magazine was doing incredibly well I was putting in really long days I don't know if I'd ever been better at my job than I was at that point I was still managing to do that and but what happened was there'd always been this binary sense of me privately and me professionally and that just kind of stretched to the ultimate degree when I was in New York and I think it became clear quite quickly that something was going to have to give and and it was pulled so tight that it was going to break at some point. When did that start, the divide between private Terry and professional Terry? When did that compartmentalisation start? I think it had always been there and actually before I started working. So as I said in the book, I've had mental health health issues since being a child. I was self-harming at a really young age and, you know, incredibly haunted, I think, really as a child. And I'd go to school and I would be, you know, top of the class, very helpful to the teachers, asking for homework because, you know, I wanted to impress the teachers. And so I'd already kind of developed these two sides to my life where I could go somewhere every day. At that case, it was school and I could apply myself and I could be good and I could succeed and, and make somebody there happy and make them think I was good at things and I would get praise and then 
then the personal me, even as a young child, was very different. And then that only kind of amplified at work because I was very concerned that if anybody knew the real situation and they knew how serious my mental health issues were and they knew kind of how dark it could get for me and and my problems that nobody would trust me with a job certainly not running a magazine that nobody would think somebody like me could hold it together and that I'd lose people's trust and that I'd lose people's respect so it became even more important to keep those two sides of me distinct and to keep them as far away from each other as possible and then as my private behavior worked and in terms of the self-harm and the drinking and all of that and as my mental health unraveled my efforts to keep the professional bit of me away from all of that and I overperformed and I put in more hours and I worked harder and I tried to come up with bigger ideas more ambitious ideas because I was trying so hard to distract from over here and it kind of worked for a bit to be honest everything was going incredibly well at work but everything at the same time was just devolving into such a terrible state in my private life so that when that crash happened and I ended up overdosing and in hospital I think that was always to be honest an inevitability. You really started running I guess as a small girl you know look if I can only get over there things will be better. Yeah. And I ended up being able to physically run. And I ran to London, which was 250 miles away from my hometown. And then that wasn't quite far enough. So then it was New York, which was three and a half thousand miles. But yeah, when I was a little girl, I, I was thinking, you know, to get away from this scenario that's happening right here that I'm in the middle of. And the thing about being a kid is you are trapped in that house, really. You've got no way of extracting yourself from it or making your life better independently. You know, school was a great escape and place of safety for me and then work became that place but yeah it was definitely before I could physically run anywhere it was all there before that. We won't go into this but could you just explain what was going on at home just for context? Yeah, so, I mean, home was incredibly volatile, violent and chaotic. So my mum had multiple violent partners, including my dad, um, who she divorced when I was two. And then there was just a succession of awful men who came through the door. So there was a lot of physical violence, domestic violence towards my mum and to us, and then sexual abuse from one of her partners as well. We spent time in a women's refuge when I was about 10. And so that pretty much carried on my entire childhood really and home was a very dangerous place for me and my priority became very quickly both physically getting out of there but then also ensuring that I built a life that meant I would never end up back there through any circumstance. How did it affect your relationship with men? Well it definitely it definitely did. I was engaged at 16 which is funny because I always said I didn't want to make the same mistakes my mum did and she got married the day after her 16th birthday and she had my brother just before her 17th birthday, me just before her 19th birthday and I was like that will never be me and then I got I got engaged to my first boyfriend in our hometown, 35 quid ring from Chesterfield Market, he proposed on a caravan holiday in Spain. <laughs> 
It was only the second time I'd ever been abroad. I mean, I was still at school. I was doing my A-levels and he lived in a Barrett house at the top of the hill. He was a middle class boy. His mum and dad were teachers. You know, I could believe this middle class boy would go out with me and we were at the bottom of the hill in the council estate and that relationship actually lasted five and a half years and then you know we realized we were children but (laughs) after that you know I had a lot of again volatile relationships so I would fall in love very quickly very intensely I would you know become incredibly involved but I often I think it's true to say went for men who were very emotionally detached or unavailable and you know I don't think it takes a psychologist to work out I was kind of you know my dad had left or we'd left my dad at a very young age and he wasn't present throughout my entire childhood and there was definitely issues of rejection there and I noticed after a while that I would go for men who I felt were beyond me and eventually they would always reject me and I I think I found a familiarity in that pain so that pain of being rejected I think I mistook it for love really that feeling I would get when they would cheat on me or you know just not call for four days or dump me for the fourth time this feeling would fill my chest and I thought it was love but it wasn't it was the familiarity of that feeling I used to get when my dad wouldn't turn up and so you know I had a terrible taste in men quite frankly and when I was in my 30s my mid-30s I said to a friend of mine I don't trust my judgment with men anymore I don't (laughs) I just don't think I'm capable of making the right decisions emotionally. And I, I was single for the best part of five years because I just thought I can't do this. I don't know how to be in a functioning relationship. And it's actually only my boyfriend now who I met when I was 39, set up on a blind date, probably not my usual type. Sounds like a good thing. Yeah, maybe because he's kind and nice. And he's the first, I'd say, proper relationship I've ever had. And it's not volatile. And he's an incredibly kind human being. But it took me until almost 40 to be able to be in a good or even functioning relationship. When all this was going on in your like 20s and you were like, you know, working harder and harder and faster and faster and having crap relationships, did you know what was going on? Were you aware of the trauma or is that something that you've become aware of since? I think I definitely was. When I first moved to London and the focus had been getting an education, going to university and then making it to London, that was the plan. And then I got to London And then I was like, now what? And actually, at that point, I started to really struggle with the trauma I'd been through before, especially the sexual abuse. I found that the memories start to come back. I mean, I probably had PTSD, but I was like dealing with a lot of memories. I would obsess about it and I hadn't thought about it. I kind of closed it out of my mind for years. And I think almost once the running had stopped, I had to deal with the fallout of it. And I started to self-harm very seriously and drink a lot. And, And I took an overdose when I was 21. I was conscious that I had a lot of stuff to deal with and wasn't dealing with it very well. But then to your point, as my career really picked up a pace, I was able to shut it out again. So everything became about work 
pretty much everything. I wouldn't even take holiday because I remember I took holiday once and I started to think about the things that had happened to me before. And I was like, the only way I can I can do this is to never have a minute where I kind of sit with my own thoughts. And I just filled every available hour and minute really with work and with other things so that I didn't have to deal with it. But I think I was always aware in the back of my mind of where that road would take me if I started to go down it. I think we really underestimate the way that we use busy, 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 work, 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 faster, harder. Because, you know, work ethic is so prized. It's such a, you know, you've got a great work ethic. It's like the ultimate compliment, or it always felt that way to me. And, you know, I remember when I changed from one job to another, and I remember saying, to my partner oh you know it's going to be better because it's this that and the other and I'll you know I definitely won't be working like 90 hours a week like I was there and he just turned around and said to me are you not planning to take yourself with you (laughs) yeah and that's the trouble and that really struck me when I was thinking about this conversation it's like you know 3,000 miles is never going to be far enough if you were on that plane It is a cliche, but it's entirely true, which is you take yourself with you everywhere. And actually, you know, no matter how far I ran, as you say, I was always along for the ride. And with me being along for the ride, there came everything else attached with that. My trauma, my issues, my problems, my mental health, all of that was still there untackled. And, you know, the thing that's always terrified me about losing my job, I think, is not having that focus. Because if I don't have that focus and that thing that I invest everything in, then what am I who am I and more to the point am I really then going to have to take a serious look at everything and and you're right we define ourselves by how many hours we've worked but I said to somebody two hours ago oh you know how much I enjoy grafting I'm a grafter like you, you know I'll work any hours and you hear yourself saying it and that kind of sense of that being you know something to be proud of and it's only in recent years that I've tried to have something approaching balance and for it not to be a badge of pride to work all of the hours and to never take a break and to never have rest and to never let your mind rest or wander for one moment. What was the first point you think where you you made a decision that put you before work? When I decided to leave New York 100% so you know I was editor-in-chief of Time Out New York it was a big job it was really well paid I was earning proper money for the first time in my life I had a great apartment in New York I did have friends there one very good friend my best friend who I met there but the job was a big job and people really respected it and people would go wow that's an amazing job what an incredible thing when I came home I felt you know for the first time like people respected me and thought I was something and somebody and I you know massively define myself by that and then when it was clear that it just wasn't working out for me there personally that you know as a city New York and I were an awful fit it was just an incredibly toxic combination and I got an offer of a job back here and I was kind of weighing up what to do and Time Out offered me a bigger job with even more money, even more kind of, you know, a bigger boost for the ego. And I said no when I came home. You know, a lot of people couldn't quite get their head around it because they were saying who leaves a job like that of their own free will. And some people kept saying, oh, 
you can tell us, were you fired? And I was like, no, I wasn't fired because they couldn't believe I'd made that choice. And I think I say in the book, it was either her or me. And by her, I mean that broken version of me that New York was kind of incubating almost. I had to save myself. And the only way I could save myself was by walking away from the city, but also walking away from that job. I could never have imagined doing something like that. Walking away from a job like that would have been unthinkable to me at one point. And it was terrifying. And I kept thinking, this could end up being the biggest mistake of your life. Like, if this doesn't work out, you have chucked in this thing. But I I just had to do it. And a friend of mine who's in the book, Dave, a really good friend of mine who I didn't always behave the best to when I was drinking. There's a story in the book about one terrible thing I did to him. And he actually said to me, you know, I think you'd have died if you just stayed in New York. And that's kind of always stuck with me because I think, I think he's right. I'm not sure I'd be sat here talking to you now if I hadn't have made that decision. That's massive, isn't it? It's the power of what other people think, though. It's really scary, isn't it? Have you always cared what other people thought or is that something that came on you with the job? My kind of outward persona has always been, oh, I don't really care. I don't give a fuck mm. what people think. I'm quite bolshy and quite strident. And in some respects, I kind of haven't cared what people have thought. I've made decisions that maybe other people wouldn't have made. And I've always tried to be independent of thought and not be cowed by what people think. But, you know, also I've define myself by my job and by what people think about that before so I must have been conscious of of appearing successful to people I think as much as I say oh I don't care what people think I think I must do and I think that's a insecurity of being working class I think Mm. it's being a working class woman in, in an industry where there aren't that many women like me and I think that's always been an issue for me is is having insecurities and being intimidated a lot of the time and my way of dealing with that intimidation was to massively front it out and make sure that people thought I wasn't. So it's shameless on the outside and totally Mm -hmm. shamed on the inside. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's really not many people who aren't middle class or upper middle class Mm -hmm. in journalism, even, even now. So many of the routes into journalism have shut down and you know I think if anything it's it's a much worse situation than than when I started out yeah I mean it definitely makes you overcompensate and if you're inclined to work extra hard and be Mm. busy 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 and put work before everything else it does make you worse I think Mm. the amount of hours of my life and the amount of my labor I've given to companies that, you know, paid me the same salary, whether I worked 40 hours a week or 80 hours a week. And I gave and I gave and I gave. And I'm like, for what? I've helped line so many men's pockets, quite frankly. And as I get older, I'm just like, what was I thinking? It seems more bonkers the more time that passes. I think I was probably 40 or in my early 40s before I suddenly thought, hang on, you haven't taken your holiday any year since you started work. You've never got given any days over. You've never got given any money back. You know, no one's thanking you for it. No one's probably even noticing. No. For why? Why am I working 14 extra hours a week for nothing to benefit somebody else? My salary stays the same regardless of what I do. And I think, as you say, if if you are somebody who gets validation through work and will always give more and will always give more and will always give more, it will just suck that out of you and give you very little in return. Having been through what you've been through, how has that affected your attitude to work? 
Terry the editor, who is that now? Um, it's definitely improved, partly because of the book, actually, because one of the big difficulties was that effort I was making before to keep the private me and the professional me meant that I was presenting a certain image at work, who was also tough as nails, you know, was quite strict, was quite a tough boss. And all of that kind of fed into the presentation of me at work. And then once the book was kind of out there, all of your secrets are laid bare. And so people do know that I have mental health issues. People do know that I've had problems with pills and with booze. And people know about the violence and the abuse of my childhood. And so there's definitely a sense of the person I am now is actually an Mm. accurate record of who I am and that kind of demarcation between me over here and me over here doesn't exist anymore so it's definitely I think made me more empathetic just more of a rounded human being but also I was very firm when I came back from New York because New York is very much a professional culture that thrives on long long hours of complete dedication to the job nobody would think anything of emailing you at midnight about work and expecting a response you are on constantly and New York demands that regardless of your industry regardless of your seniority New York is ruthless and driven by ambition and driven by success and by material material success really Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So when I came back to London, I really wanted to walk away from that. And so I was very clear about trying to put in boundaries between work and home to be quite strict on the amount of hours I worked. And it helped when I had my son. It shouldn't have been okay before when I was single and I had the ability to work all of the hours and it didn't really matter because it was just me. And also, I think you've got to set an example. I have people who work for me and I don't want them to think that the way that you become successful is by working 14 hours a day and by not having a personal life and working every evening and every weekend. I think as a manager, you do have a responsibility to set a healthy example and to draw boundaries and draw boundaries for your people as well. So I think I'm a better editor. I think I'm a better boss. And I think now I am who I am regardless. Hopefully people like it, but if they don't, that's that. If people wouldn't want to trust me at work because of the things that I've been open about, then that isn't somewhere that I'd want to work anyway. So I hope that it's all for the better, really, where I am now. Yeah, I mean, since you've come back from New York, your life kind of accelerated through, you know, your partner and a baby and now you're moving to Manchester and an enormous amount of change in a really short period of time. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about motherhood and having a baby. How did you feel when you found out you were pregnant? Very surprised. (laughs) So basically I have endometriosis, moderate endometriosis, and I've been told that it would be more difficult for me to get pregnant and that if I wanted to earlier would be better. I found out I was pregnant just after my 40th birthday. 
day. So bearing in mind what I'd been told, I definitely wasn't trying for a baby. I'd been with my boyfriend a year. And yeah, it was just after my 40th. And my mother-in-law, we won the tube. And she said I was rubbing my belly. She said to my boyfriend, oh, I think she's pregnant. And he was like, don't be ridiculous. And it turned out I was. So he was saying, when did you last have a period? I was like, I don't know. Who knows that? Who knows when they have a period? I just, every month I'm surprised. Every month I'm like, really? It might have been a while. It'd been two months and I didn't even realise. So I did a pregnancy test and it turned out I was seven weeks pregnant. When I was in my 20s, I was adamant that I didn't want to get married. I didn't want to have kids, mainly because I hadn't been set a terribly good example. And I wasn't sure, to be honest, that I would be very good at either being a wife or being a mother. And then in my 30s, I had this urge to have a baby for about two years. And I really think that was like biological determinism coming for me. I just kind of ignored it and it went away eventually. So when I became pregnant, I assumed I'd have been like, nope, this is not happening. But immediately I just knew that I wanted the baby and I would keep it. And it was kind of extraordinary when I think about it now, because it was just a done deal from the moment I found out. And, you know, life would change dramatically and it's changed dramatically anyway for other reasons but I would have a human being to be responsible for I'd been with my partner a year we would be bringing a life into the world together we would be tied together forever and it was just kind of an immediate thing where I knew I would be having that baby and I knew at that moment that I would be a good mother and I definitely felt an instant urge to look after him look after myself for the first time and it was a pretty amazing experience actually. I mean you're estranged from both of your parents aren't you? Did becoming a mother yourself change how you felt about them at all? It made it more difficult for me to understand. I have sympathy in the fact that she was 16 when she became a mother. I mean that is a child. I cannot imagine what kind of mother I'd have been if I had a kid at 16. But I find it harder to understand her decisions because now I I'm a mother and I'm responsible for this little boy. I want to protect him with every fibre of my being. And so I find it really difficult to understand how they could behave the way they did. And it actually made it more difficult for me. It didn't make it easier. Thankfully, my boyfriend's mum is incredible and she's been a huge support to me. But it made the absence of my mum very visible and I kind of mourned that relationship in a brand new way when I was pregnant especially I thought a lot about what it would be like to have somebody there at that point somebody who could help me and guide me a bit but yeah it's interesting how it didn't kind of ease anything for me if anything it it made it slightly more difficult it's really interesting you're close with your brother and sister aren't you Mm. are they in touch with her So my sister is, but not my brother. I'm very, very privileged to have the relationship I do with my brother and sister. In my 20s, I was only in touch with them a little bit. I mean, my brother didn't get on when we were much younger. And we all kind of discovered this new relationship with each other when I think I was about 30, 31. And it's been one of the greatest joys of my adult life, having that relationship. You know, we are incredibly, incredibly close. I'm godmother to my brother's daughter. We're all there for each other. We have a shared history. I mean, a painful history, but one that has made us very loyal to each other, which I think probably in some ways has made us closer than normal siblings. 
That's interesting. I, I guess that nobody knows what you went through like they do. Yeah, absolutely. What are your coping mechanisms now? Now you're kind of, I keep saying out the other side, but are you out the other side? Are you still no, in therapy? And... I don't think you ever are. I think no. for years, my big thing was getting over it. If I just get over it, it'll all be okay. You know, it just became kind of apparent that it, you can't. It's always going to be there. And the best you can do is learn to live with it and to live alongside it and to not allow it to destroy and completely consume you which it absolutely can that's all I can do day to day is try and manage it to the best of my ability if I'm depressed I know that I have to stay away from alcohol I know self-harming has previously been a coping mechanism of mine so if I'm upset you know if I'm tempted I've been tempted before and I go to my boyfriend and I say this is in my head right now can you talk to me so that you know because once it's out of my mouth because part of it it's right it does thrive in silence I used to be so ashamed of it I used to think what kind of grown woman self-harms all of the narrative is around hysterical teenage girls I'm a 41 year old successful woman and a mother who does that at my age but actually just saying it out loud to my boyfriend saying I'm feeling like this can you just talk to me and saying it out loud and letting somebody know that I'm in a dangerous place really really helps and I'm on medication I think I'll probably always be on medication and it's changed over the years and I think it will probably continue to and I see it as a lifelong thing and I know that I will probably have periods of depression in the future and I just have to try and deal with it the best way I can but actually I'm no longer isolated or able to isolate. And that, that's a big thing for me. Because when I lived in New York, I spent, I lived alone for the best part of 15 years, both in London and then New York. If I wanted to isolate myself and really kind of go into a bad place and drink loads and self-harm, if you live alone and you don't have people regularly checking in, you can very easily isolate yourself and use those coping mechanisms that you know you shouldn't. I now live with a man, which is a big shock. We're still getting used to it. <laughs> and it's harder to do it when you're not completely isolated. I can't imagine... I would end up back where I was in such an extreme situation, but I don't think there's any getting over it. How do you feel about ageing now? Oh, God, I'm so pleased. I honestly thought that I would die before I was 40. I just wasn't really a thing that I even got upset about. I just kind of had it in my head that I wouldn't make old bones and that I would probably destroy myself before then. And I did spend a long period especially of my 30s, wanting to die. I had real problems with suicidal ideation and that was a big obsession for me and I was always planning it in quite a lot of detail. And the biggest change for me in, in the last five years has been that I no longer feel like that. And I got to a place before I met my boyfriend, before I had my son, when I was single and living in London, where for the first time as an adult, I actively wanted to live and that was a radical thing for me a radical thing for me and I still do it's five years on and I still feel like that and so that's really the key thing for me is feeling like that and that makes me excited for the future and excited for aging in a way that I didn't think was possible and I've been happier since I've been 40 even though we've been in a pandemic even though you know all this stuff has been happening I feel contented 
and sure-footed in a way I never did. I think in my 20s and I see women in their 20s and there is no way on God's green earth I would ever want to be 25 again. Oh my God. I think if you've kind of been through any trauma, especially childhood trauma, those first years of independent womanhood are the hardest thing ever as you try and find your way in the world. You've already got all of the things that go with being a young woman, being patronised, being dismissed, all things which are really hard to fight back against. But by the time you're in your 40s, every woman that I know is an absolute force. And it's not that those things don't happen, they still do. But we are armed and able enough to make sure we don't accept it, to stand both feet on the ground and refuse to be belittled and dismissed. I mean, there were things that happened in my 20s that just still infuriate me but would never in a million years be allowed to happen now so I am so thrilled to be in my 40s so absolutely thrilled and I am very 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 excited for 50s and beyond 50s is great I promise I think that's going to be my decade I always say this though I was like 40s is my decade and now I've decided 50s is my decade as well (laughs) Um, I can't think of a single clever link to this next question that I was meant to ask you earlier but I've got to ask you I've got to talk to you about your hair okay (laughs) I am fascinated by the way your state of mind plays out in your hair more than anybody else I know and I say that as a woman who sets a lot of store by hair Um, you had we'll call it a trademark beehive so all through your career you had a beehive and it got bigger and bigger and bigger there's a picture of you in 2015 yeah you know you were folio magazine top women in media your hair is absolutely bloody huge the biggest beehive of ever and i've got to say you look so stressed i know i know exactly which picture you're talking about i know exactly the one and i've got this and it's actually square weirdly the beehive is like square almost like a what do you call those hats bearskin it's huge But your eyes, you're staring out of that picture and you look fully psyched. In that picture, you've got this enormous hair. And now, and no one can see you except me, but now you've got small hair and you look really happy and calm. Tell me about the hair journey. The hair's always been a lot. So it first started, I think I was like, 28 29 when I was first an editor and I I was editor of a men's magazine called Shortlist and I developed this bleach blonde small beehive and it became my thing leopard print bleach blonde beehive flicky black eyeliner bright red retro lipstick it was the thing and then I moved to New York when I was 32 and it became more my thing I was in a new city I didn't know anyone I was terrified and the hair became the biggest defense mechanism you've ever seen so it literally grew and grew and grew I I went from bleach blonde to red to brunette I dyed my hair like eight different uh, shades in New York I mean when I first moved there I decided to go to a salon and ask for fire engine red and they cut a fringe like a betty page fringe that was like awful and then i went brown and then i went black i mean at that point i was like incredibly unwell it's a cliche you know so you can tell she's unraveling because you know she's cut her hair for the fourth time this month but i was literally that person and I start to build this erection on my head. I have this pad from Boots that was kind of a half beehive. And over it, I put 
my ex-boyfriend's sock, which I folded in two, <laughs> and then I put clipping hair extensions on top of that over my own hair. So it was a physical thing that I used to take off at night, put on usually the floor, let's be honest, and then I'd pick it up in the morning, wipe the dust off and pin it to my head loads of hair lacquer and it just got bigger and bigger and there are pictures of me I look at now and I'm like my god why didn't anyone intervene because it got straighter and straighter and more horizontal and there are so many pictures to your point where I just look I mean I look crazy like the eyeliner was getting bigger and the lipstick was getting brighter shoes were getting massive and I write in the book about a time when I lived in New York I was sharing an apartment with somebody who was also had her own issues and she stole my beehive from my bedroom well it went missing one day and I had to go to work without my beehive and I was so upset because I felt entirely unlike myself and when I went in the psychiatric ward I still had my beehive with me and I used to do it every morning so you know I'd go for group therapy with this thing I remember when I was first admitted when I was transferred to the psychiatric ward from the ER I was in a backless gown and socks that was all I was allowed to wear for the first two days and I had this massive beehive I must I mean I know I looked mad because I was in a locked psychiatric ward with a backless gown on but also I had this mad hair and when I look back on it I cannot believe what I see but it was armour it was armour against the world it was presenting something that was quite extreme that was quite eccentric almost and it, it was absolutely true that the more ill I got and the worse things got for me the bigger the hair got and I still can't quite believe what extremes I went to and you know people still say oh you were the one with the with the mm. beehive and it becomes what you're known for and quite frankly who wants to be known for <laughs> not even their own hair somebody else's hair it wasn't my hair yeah that was a bit of a glaring sign to the world I think really that something was afoot yeah I mean I didn't realize to be honest how big it had got it just struck me when I was looking at the book again chapter two where you're writing about the admission it's the first sign of panic is the point where you think the guy might make you take it off because it's yeah. got bobby pins and they might yeah. be dangerous I mean because that for me was like who was I without it you know it wasn't necessarily the thought of being in the psych ward it was the thought of being in the psych ward without my beehive because it had become such a part of who I was or who I wanted to present to the world that it felt unthinkable for me I wouldn't go to the shops without it I wouldn't you know make dating a nightmare you've got to think because you meet somebody I always wondered why nobody wanted to date me in New York but I think the hair was a big sign and <laughs> I, the times I did go on dates I would literally have to think if I stay over at this boy's house a having sex with it on is a nightmare <laughs> b taking it off at night when you sleep over like I remember when I first met my now boyfriend, I met him when I was still wearing it. And I remember he he turned around the first night we spent together and I unpinned it and placed it on the floor. He woke up in the middle of the night, thought it was a rat, but was like, <laughs> I remember his face. And you realise at that point, maybe this isn't quite normal and okay. But yeah, that was not the best hair phase, I have to say. Do you ever feel vulnerable without it? Not anymore, but I did. I did then. I felt completely exposed, completely vulnerable. You know, the thought of going to work without it, the thought of walking down the street without it just felt impossible, absolutely impossible. Who is Terry White now? I have never been more secure 
in who I am and insistent on being so really. So it was always that I was very fractured. The pieces of me felt like they were scattered to the winds. I didn't feel complete. I didn't feel whole. And that's gone away. That doesn't exist anymore. I feel like a complete reconciled person. And that's only in the last few years. And that was a pretty seismic shift. That's amazing. Well, I've just got the questions that I always ask now. So first one, what's your emotional age? Oh, God, 41, exactly as I am. That's good. I think that's healthy. Is there a book that has either meant a lot to you or that you are always recommending to people or do you buy a lot as, as a present? My favourite book ever is Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. Well, that and Crow by Ted Hughes. Those are the two books I give the most and recommend the most. Song of Solomon was the first book I truly fell in love with when I was 17. The year before I went to university, my first boyfriend's parents, who were teachers, I'd always read loads, but there weren't a great deal of books growing up in my house. And they had this incredible bookshelf and they introduced me to Toni Morrison that summer. And Song of Solomon was the first book I read. And it's a masterpiece and her craft, the absolute skill that she has as a writer, as a poet, just completely staggered me. And Crow is just, you know, I'm I'm a fan of the visceral and the brutal. <laughs> and so Crow is completely my thing. Um, and that's probably the book I buy most for people as a gift, which either sometimes is like abject horror. Um, it's kind of the way I test people. I'm like, how do they react if I give them Crow? So yeah, they would be my two choices. What do you do if they don't pass the test? I immediately cut them out of my life in a brutal, <laughs> unforgiving way. Brilliant. They deserve it. What's your superpower? I'm very resilient. I sometimes think resilience can be overstated because it sometimes feels like, you know, you're judged by your ability to withstand so much shit that would normally fell a normal person. But I am resilient and I think it would take a huge thing to derail me these days in a way that when I was younger, I felt much more vulnerable. I'm not sure I had the kind of strength that I have now. Resilience to me used to just be making it from one day to the next and surviving unimaginable things and coming out kind of in one piece. Whereas now it's something much more fundamental about my ability to be happy and content in the world as it is. Cool. What advice would you give younger women? Where do you even start, right? Yeah. <laughs> Don't listen to the awful men in meetings. God, I mean, if I could go back to my 20-something self and not be so scared, I was so intimidated and scared. And I Me thought too. the answer to that was to like front it out. And, you know, and I was so worried about showing weakness and showing vulnerability. And, and I was so nervous and anxious and unsure of myself. And I so wish like I'd enjoyed my 20s more and enjoyed being younger and experiencing all these things for the first time but I just spent my entire time in abject terror and the reality is it will all be okay in the end it kind of will it's a cliche but it all sorts itself out and I'd also say like don't think everything is forever you think your emotional state is going to be forever your the way you feel mentally your mental health issues will always be the same things can feel like they have a great permanence in your 20s or they feel like they have a great permanence 
And I look back now and I was scared of making the wrong choice with my job. I was scared of saying no to the wrong job, say yes to the wrong job. I thought if I didn't work 16 hours a day every day, then I wouldn't get to where I wanted to be in my career. And I was so hard on myself. And I regret all of that, really, because I found my 20s just pretty awful. So don't do any of those things that I did, is what I would say. I've just sat here like a nodding dog through all of that. So yeah, what she says, basically. Who is an old bird role model for you? She's not with us anymore, but my nana was just the most magnificent woman. And she wasn't perfect. She was stubborn and incredibly difficult and incredibly judgmental. But she was so loyal and empathetic, steadfast, fierce sincere intelligent woman and you know she spent the best part of her life alone my granddad died when he was in his 50s and she died in her 80s having you know never married again never gone out with anyone else lived decades on her own and she so loved her own company and I've always been like that I've always 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 loved my own company and people would always say to her oh you should get married again you know you should and she was like I don't want anyone I love my life I go shopping she goes to the bingo she watches her movies she was like I don't want anyone else and she showed me how happy you could be in your own company and the value of your own company and she She knew her self-worth. She thought she was a magnificent woman. She knew her value in this world. You know, she'd never had a proper career. She'd been a housewife and a mum, but she knew her worth and she knew how absolutely great she was. And she was an incredible role model in terms of, of knowing your value, enjoying your own company, valuing yourself. And I don't even know if she'd have known that's what she was doing intellectually. She just, that was how she lived her life. And I think it's an incredible example. Cool. Last one. How many fucks do you give? Zero. Well, maybe one. Let's be honest. I always say zero. And then I'm like, I think I give a couple. I think I give a couple. I can't tell you how many people say zero and then go, oh, hang on a minute. There's that one and that one. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'd probably give a couple of fucks. I think like 10 years ago, I'd have been like, I'm too tough to give fucks. And now I give a couple of fucks. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Terry. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review, and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 